I trust you all remember that next week is our Thanksgiving potluck in the afternoon. We won't have an evening service. We'll have an afternoon service where we can share our testimonies of what God's been doing and, and some of the things that we're thankful for. I, I trust you will plan on that afternoon. It's a great time together, one of the highlights of the year in my opinion. With that being the case, though, I decided to postpone starting our series that I hope to end the year with, a short series through the book of Jonah. I decided we'd wait till after Thanksgiving for that, and tonight instead we'll turn to the first chapter of Nehemiah, and we'll have a sermon from Nehemiah this evening. This really is the first and, in essence, the only introduction we have of Nehemiah anywhere in, in the biblical text when we come to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah is a man who is often used, and you might even say abused, I think, at times, as a model of leadership. There's a lot of good things about Nehemiah's leadership, but sometimes there's overstatement. We're missing the overall point, though, if we focus in on Nehemiah as, as a leader in this book. And when we focus on the man and his methods, we're missing what the book is really about. The, the, the lesson that, that we need to take away when we observe Nehemiah is the faithfulness of our God. He is the, the hero of the story, not Nehemiah. We need to see the way Nehemiah depended on God and how God delivers his people. Now, we won't see the entire story tonight. I encourage you to read the book and see how it goes, but we are going to look at the first chapter this evening. Really, we're, we're concerned with what happens in verses 4 and onward in the chapter, but the preceding verses give us insight into the background. So let's look at them to start with. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came. I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. Nehemiah was among the Jewish exiles. If you remember, if you were part of Andy's class that, that went for just a short time last year on, on history, you, you may remember that the exile took place and, and the people were taken to Babylon. Well, Nehemiah was among the exiles after they were allowed to return, after the time of Cyrus had given them permission to go back. He's among the Jewish exiles in the late 5th century, at a time when Judah as a nation was still a captive state under Persia. Cyrus had allowed the, the temple to be rebuilt, he had allowed some to return, but Persia was the dominant world empire at the time, and Judah was under their dominion. Historically, as I said, the first exiles had returned to Jerusalem several years now, earlier. And here at the beginning of the book, we, we find Nehemiah living in the Persian capital of Susa. That, that was the, the winter capital, where the Persian kings moved the center of government during the winter months. It was a warmer environment, so they would pick up and move to Susa. And Nehemiah was there in the capital of the Persian Empire. We're, we're told that, that Nehemiah, in the verses I read, had just visited or been visited by his brother and some others from Jerusalem. They had come to the capital and, and visited him. Obviously, Nehemiah was not one of the Jews that had chosen to return to Jerusalem. 
But he had family there. He had his brother and, and family members that were in Jerusalem. So he inquired, what's the state of the city? What's the state of the exiles that have returned? And what he heard was that the walls are in disrepair. That the gates of the city have been burned. Essentially, the city's destitute and, and is completely vulnerable to attack from any of the hostile groups that, that might be around them. That, that was the report that he heard, and that's the background that I want us to have as we start thinking about this, this first chapter this evening. I, I expect that the reason you're here on a Sunday night is because you would agree that our God is a great God. Uh, I don't think I'd find any kickback on that idea. Our God is a great God. We also believe that our great God has a plan for our lives. Again, I don't think there'd be any kickback on that. We may grumble sometimes about the plan that he has for our lives. We may not like the way it unfolds, but we agree he has a plan. At some point, we, we're never aware, though, of what unexpected challenges may come up. One, one thing that, that we can be confident of is that our future will, without a doubt, require that we face trials. We, we will encounter stressful situations. Things will come up. There will be disappointments. There will be discouragement. There will be challenges. Those will be things we face individually. Those will be things fa we face collectively as a church. Life might easily become for us at some point one crisis after another. We, we know this is how it is because we live in this sin-broken world, this, this sin-filled world. Well, Nehemiah has heard of a crisis. And tonight, what we want to see is how Nehemiah handles that. How he approaches this unexpected crisis that, that comes up in his life. And, and we'll see that he can teach us a lesson of how we depend on God. This is a lesson that's applicable in this broken world. Nehemiah shows us what the proper response should be to every crisis. The lesson we learn is, is that we should respond to every crisis with expressed dependence upon God. Not just dependence, but expressed dependence. We need to respond by depending on our God. As I said, Nehemiah was faced with a particular crisis. Um, and it happens in much the same way that sometimes we're faced with crisis. All of a sudden somebody brings us word that we weren't, in, weren't anticipating. Here in Nehemiah, he's learned that his family in Jerusalem, they're, they're in desperate straits. This called for Nehemiah to act. Let's pick up the record of Nehemiah's response in verse 4. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the uttermost parts of the heavens, 
I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. They are your servants and your people whom you redeem by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah had to respond to this report they had received, this, this crisis that, that came up in his life. He, he couldn't afford to, to not respond. Yet the first response that we see Nehemiah take is that of going to God. He goes to God in prayer. He, he gives this fervent prayer. I'm sure there was much more emotion when Nehemiah prayed it than when we just read it. What I want us to do this evening is look carefully at his prayer so that we can see the, the way it's structured. And, and from it, there's three steps that, that we can ascertain that, that prepared Nehemiah to address the, the crisis they faced. These are steps that we can use as a pattern for our lives when, when we have unexpected crisis, patterns that we can use to express our dependence upon God even as we face the, the, the trials of life. The first step is found in verses 4 and 5. The, there we see that step number one is steadfastly trust our great God. Steadfastly trust. We must steadfastly trust that's easy to say. Not so easy to do, is it? These verses give us a couple points on the doing side of steadfastly trust. Again, I, I think we would all say, yes, we need to trust God. But when push comes shove, it's hard to, to, to actually trust. Well, these points combine to make steadfast trust possible. First of all, steadfast trust is based on who God is. It's based on who God is. The, the news that Nehemiah received here, it struck him deeply. He, he reacted to it in, in a very visceral fashion. He, he had emotions that, that came forth. Look at the emotional language. He, he sat down. He, he wept. He, he mourned. And verse 4 tells us that they did this for days. Now, we may not be able to fully relate to uh, as it may be that, that we don't care about a remote PLAs or remote people to this degree, it's hard for us to, to comprehend why hearing news of a place far away would, would have this kind of reaction. But I think we all have people and things that, that we care about. I would hope so. If, if not, there's something wrong with us. There, there's people that, that we care greatly about, that we feel strongly for. This is news about people that Nehemiah felt strongly for. This was not news that, that he could simply feel bad about and then brush aside and return to his normal activities. You know, sometimes we hear bad reports of, of people that aren't so close to us and we say, well, that's really sad. We pause. And then we go back to life and we don't ever think about it again. That's not what Nehemiah is facing here. Rather, he's knocked flat by the news he receives. He, his emotions are struck to the core. Still, Nehemiah does not become incapacitated by emotions. Some of us are probably more emotional than others, but our emotions should not incapacitate us. This verse shows us that Nehemiah let his emotions drive him to action. He fasted, 
and prayed. He, he allowed this news to, to work on him, and as it worked on him, he let it drive him to God. We need to do the same. And we'll receive news that impacts us deeply, news that, that causes us to grieve and mourn at times. It, it, it's impossible to receive news of a tragedy, of, uh, of someone we care about, somebody, say, a, a loved church member that, that we know greatly, and, and receive that news and not have that impact us emotionally. We, we may hear of a case where sin has a victory in the life of another church member. And... It's someone that we're close to and we know that we need to do something about it. Before we do anything, we need to learn to prepare with steadfast trust based on who God is. Nehemiah's prayer, when we look at it, tells us two things about who God is. Uh, two things that we can base our steadfast trust on. One, God is a faithful God. He begins his prayer in verse 5 by using the personal name for God, Yahweh, that capital L-O-R-D in our Bibles. That's the personal name for Israel's God. That, that's the unique name by which God had revealed himself to Moses as recorded in Exodus where he told Moses, I am the I am. That's the name that God used when he formed the covenant with Moses there on Mount Sinai. So to an Israelite, this name came to, to have a dual meaning. It it carried the idea of love, that, that God would love them, but also carried a personal relationship. To Nehemiah, God was a personal God. Nehemiah had this personal relationship with God, and, and that relationship was built upon the covenant relationship that God had formed with Israel. Nehemiah understood that even though Israel had gone into exile as a nation, the covenant was still in place. Sin could not destroy the covenant because God had promised it would not. So the steadfast trust we see Nehemiah engage with is based on this covenant relationship that God had established. He knew God would be faithful to the covenant. So he says, I beseech you, O Lord, there's Yahweh, God of heaven. That's the second term he uses, God of heaven. Nehemiah does not allow himself to dwell exclusively on the situation that he's facing. Instead, Nehemiah raises his thoughts above the earthly crisis and acknowledges that, that he is addressing the, the God of heaven. He, he's acknowledging that the God is sovereign. He's addressing this one who, who sits in heaven and who reigns from his throne there that, that looks over his universe. Nehemiah is addressing the one who by right by nature, and by practice, rules the entire created universe. The situation that Nehemiah is facing is trivial when compared to the magnitude of, of God's rule. We really shouldn't read Nehemiah's opening phrase here, O Lord, God of heaven, without thinking about the pattern that, that Christ gives us in, in Matthew 6. How does the Lord's Prayer begin? Our Father, who art in heaven. Our Father, that personal name for God, who art in heaven. The one who rules over the universe. We're addressing the same ruler, sitting on his same throne, magnifying, managing his universe, 
in the same manner they was when Nehemiah addressed him. He's ruling the universe by right. He's ruling by nature. He's ruling by practice. And we have a personal relationship with him. Our relationship is not the same covenantal relationship that Nehemiah had. It's a different relationship, but it's nonetheless a covenant. In Matthew 26, verse 28, Christ told us that he established Jeremiah's new covenant in his blood. Last week we celebrated that when we partook of the Lord's table together. This is new covenant given in my blood for you. We have a relationship with God that's personal. We're adopted. We call him Father. And it's a direct result of love then. Our Father who loves us. So God will be just as faithful to us because of his covenant. Our relationship is just as personal, if not more so, than what Nehemiah had when he approached God. We can have a steadfast trust in God because God is a faithful God. That's number one. And number two, God is great and awesome. I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. When Nehemiah considers God, he immediately thinks of God's character. And this is the overall impression that he has, great and awesome. That, that's a, a summation of God's attributes. God, God is inseparable from his attributes. Things such as his self-existence, his unchangeableness, those things we studied last year in our spiritual family nights. Well, Nehemiah sums up all of these inherent aspects of God, in, and he says, God, you are great. And then he adds the term awesome. We can also translate that term as terrible. Or we could translate it stand in fear. It's a term that that denotes that that God is so wonderful that he is both awe-inspiring and fear-inspiring at the same time. I I believe that the great tsunami that that hit the Indian Ocean back in 2004 is an example of of this dual idea of, of awe-inspiring and terror-inspiring. There, there was a video that, that was found long after the tsunami. It was taken by someone that was on the beach in Thailand when the tsunami was about hitting, and this person's recording, and you could hear their voice as suddenly this great wave rises up in the distance, and, and you hear this awe in their voice. Look at this wave coming in. This is huge. Look at it. And then it gets closer. And the realization dawns, this wave is not stopping. And you hear the voice turn from awe to fear. The wave hasn't changed, but the perspective the person had of that wave changed. The magnitude of the wave was awe-inspiring, and it was fear-inspiring. In a sense, this is a picture of our God. Depending on our perspective of God, he is awe-inspiring and fear-inspiring. God is a great and awesome God. Based on that, we must have a steadfast trust in him. These are the elements of who God is that that call forth for a steadfast trust. A steadfast trust must be based on who God is. A covenant God who is great and awesome. It must also be based on what God's word says. Steadfast trust is based on what his word says. In the final part of verse 5, Nehemiah remembers that, that throughout the Old Testament, God promises to bless Israel when they keep his commandments. 
specifically says that, that God will preserve the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. He'll preserve his covenant. This connects he, to God's hesed, that, that Hebrew word that we have translated so often as loving kindness. Uh, sometimes, you, depending on your version, you may find steadfast love or, or mercy. That, that word that emphasizes the loyalty as well as the faithfulness of God to his covenant. The, the idea that God is going to move for the benefit of those with whom he has a covenant relationship with. Nehemiah notes in this verse that God's love is specifically directed towards those who love him and obey his commandments. God expects that his love will be reciprocated by obedience. God will express his love to his people and his people will respond by obeying his commandments, commandments that express his will. God's revealed his faithfulness to his people through his word time and time again. He's demonstrated his faithful love to us. And now he expects that that we will reciprocate with obedience. He's given us commandments to obey that that express his will over our lives. He's given us promises that that we can rest our trust on. Think about Hebrews 13.5, for example. The author there quotes from Deuteronomy 31.6. Deuteronomy is part of that Mosaic law. The promises that God gave Israel under the covenant now apply in the New Testament to us in, a, in this sense because Hebrews brings it forward. It says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That promise should be as comforting to us as it was to Nehemiah because God has repeated it for us in the New Covenant, in the church age. Regardless of the crisis we find ourselves in, we can gain comfort knowing that, that God is right there with us. He will not leave us. He will not forsake us. At times, we may be dealing with very heavy emotions. Yet we still can have confidence that God is present with us in the crisis. We can steadfastly trust God because his word tells us that he is trustworthy. Steadfast trust is based on what his word says. We should respond to every crisis with expressed dependence upon God. Step one to do that is that we steadfastly trust our great God. Step two can be found in verses six and seven. Step two is sorrowfully confess sin to our great God. Sorrowfully confess sin. Sorrow, sorrowfully confessing our sin, that, that's an outworking really of trusting in our God. It, it's really something we must do if we trust him. If we steadfastly trust God, then we will trust him to deal with our sin in his holiness. Again, let's look at the pattern that the Nehemiah provides in, in these two verses. Look at verse 6 and 7. He's praying, God, let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I'm praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances, which your commands, or which you commanded your servant Moses. There, there's two aspects to this confession that, that Nehemiah 
contains in this prayer, and, and he really intertwines the, these two aspects in the verses, but I'll separate them so that we can look at them in, in somewhat of a theological sequence. That the first type of confession is that we must sorrowfully confess personal sin, sin that we've committed. I, I doubt that I really need to say too much about that. Um, Peter reminds us in First Peter 1 that we are to be holy as, as God is holy. During this life, we will never achieve that standard, but that doesn't change the standard. We know that from our series through First Peter. The standard's there. We don't reach it. We, any gap there is sin, and we need to confess that sin. We're told we need to confess. If we fail to meet the standard, we confess our failures, and, and as we do that, we rejoice that forgiveness is found already in Jesus Christ. Past, present, future sins are covered by the blood of Christ. So we must, though, confess. Impertinent to the matter of dealing with crisis, we must recognize that, that we'll never be ready to address a crisis if we have unconfessed sin in our lives, disrupting our communion with our God. We're securing our salvation, but, but present sin disrupts that, that communion. So we must begin by confessing our personal sin. We, we cannot really depend on God and harbor sin in our lives. They're, they're mutually exclusive. So we must sorrowfully confess personal sin. Nehemiah expands beyond his personal sin, though, and, and shows us that we must sorrowfully confess corporate sin as well. Corporate sin. I really find it incredible in, in this section of Nehemiah's prayer, verses 6 and 7, that the most space is given over to his confession of the sins of Israel. Nehemiah was part of the covenant community of, of Israel, and, and he confesses the, the collective corporate sin of nations as if they are his own sins. He indicates that, that he's been praying this prayer day and night. In other words, repetitively, he keeps praying for these things. The, the specific sins that he refers to are violations of the law of Moses. He, he states that they have not kept the commandments and the statutes and the ordinances or, or the, the legal prescriptions. They, they violated the law. It, it was a violation of the law, he confesses, that, that caused the exile of the nation. Nehemiah knew that, that God had promised the nation that if they continued in sin and rebellion, exile would be their ultimate punishment. And now he confesses that this is the case, and he confesses Israel's guilt. All that probably makes sense to us when we read it. We, we understand the covenant relationship, and we see how Israel was taken in exile because of the sin. But recognize that, that the sins that brought on the exile had happened over the course of centuries. And from Nehemiah's perspective, there's almost 150 years. Nehemiah himself had not played a direct role in any of these sins. Yet he identifies himself with the sins because he's part of the nation. He acknowledges that the corporate we in verse 7 acted wickedly. That, that includes himself as part of the nation. And for that reason he could say in verse 6 that he's praying on behalf of the sons of Israel. He represents them. Now tonight... I anticipate it, and as look out, it's confirmed for me. I'm primarily talking to the core folks of First Baptist Church of Sterling Heights. I think there's a great lesson for us here. 
we need to identify with the sins of our church. We need to identify with past sins. If we're going to see our church accomplish great things for God, then, then we need to understand this concept here of corporate unity. We need to identify with the corporate entity that we call First Baptist Church of Sterling Heights. And, and that will mean identifying with our collective sins. Our past is not sin-free. Let's be honest with ourselves. We all know that our church has gone through difficult times Several of those difficulties were, were either brought about by or at least resulted in, in collective sin at times in our midst. We need to ask ourselves, have we truly confessed and repented of our sins as, as a church? You know, I can just name one sin. Have we truly confessed to the fact that we fail as a church to, to have our hearts break for the lost around us? We, we, we gather, we come together, and we worship God, and we recognize that there's lost people all around us, but does that break our heart that, that we have not done anything about it? A hardness of heart is sin. Do you connect your identity with, with the sins of this congregation? We must sorrowfully confess corporate sin. We should respond to every crisis with expressed dependence on God. Step one from Nehemiah's prayer that's been recorded here under inspiration is that we must steadfastly trust our great God. Step two, we must sorrowfully confess sin to our great God, both personal and corporate sin. That brings us to step three. Step three, we need to specifically ask our great God. Specifically ask. From the final section of, of Nehemiah's prayer, verses 8 through 11, we, we see two different types of specific requests that, that we are to make. First, we are to ask, specifically ask, based on God's promises. We can ask based on God's promises. Look at verses 8 and 9, where Nehemiah makes very explicit reference in these verses back to Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 4. In Deuteronomy 30, God promises the nation that following an exile, when they repent, he will restore them. Nehemiah has already confessed that the exile came about as a result of sin. It came about because they violated the law. Now Nehemiah reminds God that God has also promised restoration if the nation repents. He specifically asks God to fulfill this aspect of his promise. In verse 10, he essentially quotes Deuteronomy 9.29 that, that focuses on the nation's exodus from Egypt. He, he's entreating God to, to once more redeem Israel in the very same way they brought the nation out of Israel with his great power and his strong hand. God, you had moved once, you rescued the nation from Egypt. Do it again. That's his prayer. We likewise need to remember the, the promises of God. What God has promised, he will do. It's that simple. If God has promised it, he will do it. When, when we face a crisis or, or we find ourselves preparing to, to serve as God's people on the scene because of some crisis that, that confronts our church or confronts people we care about, we need to ask ourselves, what has God promised in his word? 
There's no way we can manipulate God by, by praying a few verses. That's not what I'm talking about. Part of the problem of the, the prayer of Jabez a few years ago was the idea that if you just simply kind of use prayer as a mantra, praying the same thing, God, you can get what you want. No, it doesn't work that way. We know that God moves according to his own plan. But we do know as well that God's word has given us what God has chosen to reveal of his plan. And that God's word is always consistent with his will. So whenever we pray specifically based on his word, we'll find that our thoughts are conformed to God's thoughts. Our actions then will be shaped by his promises. We can ask specifically based on God's promises. So we should. We specifically should ask based on God's promises. And then second, we specifically ask based on desired action. We specifically ask based on desired action. Verse 11, finally, at long last, after this great, magnificent prayer that we read, it finally gives a specific request. Nehemiah says, Make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. After the high and lofty prayer that that led up to this point, that really is an amazing minimal request. God, just make me successful today. Give me compassion before this man. One author use the, the image that on first pass, he says, this is like using a mallet to, to kill a fly. You have this great prayer talking about God and his covenant, his law, and repenting, and all this leading up for verses, bam, to this one little request. Make me successful. Further analysis, though, shows that this is not a small request. Instead, what this is is a very specific request. From the, the last sentence of verse 11 in, in the following chapter, we, we know that this man, is, as Nehemiah refers to him in his prayer, this man is Artaxerxes, the, the king of Persia. The, the compassion that Nehemiah is looking for is an acceptance of his request that he's going to pose to, to return to Jerusalem and oversee the rebuilding of the wall. To, to understand the magnitude, we need to put this request in the context of Ezra 4.21. In Ezra 4.21, we read, So now issue a decree to make these men stop work, that the city may not be rebuilt until a decree is issued by me. Those are Artaxerxes' words. There had been complaints lodged to the same king a number of years earlier by people surrounding Jerusalem, and er Artaxerxes had issued a decree ordering all building on the walls to cease. So that means Nehemiah's request will be in direct conflict to an existing decree by Artaxerxes. In Artaxerxes' course, in, in his court as the, the king of Persia, that could very easily be a matter of life and death. The details of the request is very informative. Nehemiah refers to Artaxerxes in his prayer in what fashion? He says, before who? Look at the words he uses. What does he say? God, give me success and grant me compassion before this man. This man. King Artaxerxes was the most powerful man on the planet at that time. 
He was the ruler of the Persian Empire. The, the kings of Persia were called, even called themselves the king of kings. I don't think when we read Nehemiah saying this man, we should think that Nehemiah held the king in disdain in, in any sense. Nehemiah, we're told, was cupbearer to the king. That's a high position in the court. You don't rise to a high position in the court if you disdain the king. Um, it doesn't work that way. Plus, Nehemiah 2, 1 and 2 tells us that, that Nehemiah had never been sad in the king's presence. And he was afraid of the king when the king confronts him and asks him, what's wrong? Yeah, he, when he prays, he refers to Artaxerxes as this man. That the choice of words seem intentional. They, they seem intentional to display there, there's a difference between Nehemiah's reverence that he holds for God and for the Persian king. The Persian king may have been the most powerful man on the planet, but he was still a man created by God. There's an infant gulf between God and Artaxerxes. And Nehemiah is praying to God. Notice his request is for one specific thing, favor before the king. What, what this tells us is during his days of prayers and fasting, Nehemiah has carefully been churning in his mind what he should do. He's been thinking carefully over what needs to be done, and he's come up with a plan of action. And now all that is required is one decision by a man under God's control, because the heart of the king is like channels of water in God's hand, and this is a man under God's control. If, if he can get one decision favorable from this man, Nehemiah is going to be able to put his plan in motion. So we likewise need to ask God for specific requests. And like Nehemiah, we need to have thought through our situation so, so that we know the situation we're facing and, and we've determined what we're going to do about it, what, what plan of action we would like to take. Frequently when we do that, we'll find there's a small hinge point and we can make our request very specific instead of just, God, help me with my problem. Let's put some energy into it and ask God to help us with the, the specific key to a well-thought-out strategy. We also need to learn from Nehemiah to keep the fear of man in perspective. We're bringing a specific request before the God of the universe, the, the creator of all men. E even though... This course of action that, that we've determined to, to take in, in the midst of our crisis may put us in conflict with people, sometimes maybe even powerful people by our standards. If God chooses to grant our request, man will never be able to stand in the way. We specifically ask, based on a desired action, as part of step three, specifically ask our great God, we should respond to every crisis with express dependence on God. Every crisis. From Nehemiah's prayer here, we, we see three steps that, that produce this fervent prayer, this, this prayer that prepares us to, to respond to unexpected times of crisis that, that may come up in our lives. The, these steps all combine to really express our dependence on God. Step one, steadfastly trust our great God. Step two, sorrowfully confess sin to our great God. And step three, specifically ask our great God. 
We, we depend on our great God through prayer. That's how we depend on him and we express it when we pray. We, we need to prepare by steadfastly trusting, sorrowfully confessing, and then specifically asking in a fervent prayer. We should respond to every crisis with expressed dependence on God. So as we close tonight, let me ask you, how are you doing with, with the, the various crises that, that God has placed in your lives? I don't know what they are. I may know a few of them, but I expect all of us have a crisis or two. If not, one will come. How are you doing when, when these crises hit? Frequently, I, I fear that our prayers reveal that, that we are not expressing full dependence on God. Our prayers are consumed with worry and with fretting instead of dependence. We, we may make scattered requests because we, we've not fully thought out our approach we, we may show an overly large fear of man and, and a diminished reverence of our God. We ask God to do things without confessing the sin that affects our life and, and our church. We may not even depend on God at all. Never even getting around to fervent prayer when a crisis hits because we don't have time to stop and pray. Is it any wonder that, that we find our experience scattered with failure when we face crisis. We should respond to every crisis with an express dependence on God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this prayer that you've inspired to have preserved in your word for our benefit. Father, in it we can learn so much about coming before you, approaching you, being awed by you, and ultimately depending upon you. Father, we know that you are pleased when your people depend on you, so I pray that you would enable us to do that, that we might be men and women who depend on you and express that dependence before you. May we be men and women that even thank you for the, the times of crisis, the, the trials and hardships that you bring in our lives because they increase our opportunities to express our dependence on our God. And as we depend on you, may we magnify our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.